are entering the Freedom Hut. We've got terrible double standards from the left on display. We know about this, but now it has hit a new fever pitch. They have rescinded activist Kyle Kashev's acceptance at Harvard because of comments he made when he was 16. What does this tell us about how the left will punish people for whatever they've done in the past? And also, Oberlin College gets crushed with a multi-million dollar defamation judgment because they decided to go all social justice warrior. We got that and Iran acting crazy coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Always a pleasure and honor to have you here with me. I am coming to you live from the swamp, from Washington, D.C. And, oh, my, we have some things to discuss today. I know there's war drums. This is the classic, uh, this is the cliche in the media about any problem with Iran. We'll talk about what's going on with Iran. We have updates on on immigration as well to talk about the uh, Democrats' Starting to feel a little bit uh, a little bit cocky, starting to feel like they can strut their stuff, a little bit of swagger because some polls show that a handful of Democrats are ahead of President Trump. Don't worry, folks. They all thought that Trump was going to lose the last time. They'll convince themselves that he's going to lose this time, but I'm not I'm not worried. I'm not worried. We'll get into a bit of that a little electoral or election, early election politics. But today I, I wanted to start with you with something that really does affect all of us, and it affects so much of American life right now. Now, we live in a society of double standards, that in the fight for the political and social and economic heart and soul for this country, the ideological left has embraced hypocrisy and double standards. There is the way that rules are enforced against somebody who is on the right and there's the way that rules are enforced against somebody who is on the left this is true top to bottom in society now and now not everything is political right so if somebody's we're not talking about murder cases here or something like that although that also can be very politicized don't even get me started on What's going on with the, uh, the Central Park Five? And I, I've been telling members of my, uh, well, my inner circle that I'm, gonna, I'm just going to dig into all that stuff in the court case, and I'm going to have to read the thousands of pages because I'm not going to let this thing get rewritten. I'm not going to let that history just get changed without someone at least being willing to say that this is, um, this is wrong, what's being done, that this changing of history to fit a social justice narrative is wrong. But that's for another day right now what we have is the story of kyle kashev now i've met kyle a couple of times i don't know kyle well we talked a little bit at cpac and uh, he's a somewhat shy young man who was one of the survivors of the parkland school shooting uh, the marjorie stoneman douglas high school shooting that we've discussed many times before on this show uh, recently there was the news that the school resource officer who cowered in fear while the mass shooting was happening. Uh, he's going to be criminally prosecuted. And there was also, there, there's been a lot of news coverage and news stories 
since the event of the Parkland Five, I think they're called the Parkland Four, Parkland Four, maybe the students who became very, uh, very celebrated anti-gun activists, anti-Second Amendment activists after the Parkland shooting, including David Hogg, who you will recall was at one point given a, a type of invincibility where he could go out in the public square and say the National Rifle Association is a terrorist organization. It has the blood of children on its hands. Everyone who belongs to it is paying for the blood of, of children to be on their hands, too. He could say horrible, stupid things. And if you said that he's saying horrible, stupid things, it was, oh, how dare you? He's a victim and he's just a child. And you're, you know, boycott. They immediately go to the boycott machine. The left always goes to the boycotts. Because uh, there's there's an emotionalism and a a childishness and a selfishness and a nastiness that is at the heart of contemporary American liberalism. The left. People, they feel a certain way and that's their truth. You see this. It's, it's pervasive throughout their politics. They feel like something has to be this way or they feel like something bothers them. And they're not necessarily going to even trouble themselves with making a reasoned or rational argument about it. It's just they feel and therefore it must be. And if they feel that you must be destroyed because you disagree with them, well, then that's what will happen. Now let's go to Kyle Kashev, as we just noted. David Hogg celebrated. I believe he got into Harvard and deferred for a year. And there was this whole uh, to-do about how he was a somewhat mediocre, Hogg was a mediocre student, but because he's a celebrated figure on the left now, I believe Rachel Maddow said at one point when the Parkland students, and it's not all of them, it's a handful of them that are very left-wing in their beliefs and have become celebrated on the left for their usage as victims that can attack and be untouched in response in the political arena. And I'll do credit to Ann Coulter, the original, the the, the queen of conservative punditry she was the one who's, who really wrote about and established for everyone to see how the left loves to do the this person is a victim they can go out and clobber the political opposition with impunity and anyone who pushes back will be assaulted with this this avalanche of how dare you how dare you that's a victim you're talking to because the way that the left uses, you and I think of victims as people that we should sympathize with or people that deserve uh, either support or attention or legal redress or any number of things. The left views victim as a categorization useful for the transfer of power. It's really not about sympathy for the victims. It's not about even helping the victims. If someone is a victim, therefore there is an obligation that is created on another person or another entity, another political ideology to do something or else. This person is a victim and he or she is demanding that Republicans abandon, you know, abandon the pro-life movement, abandon the Second Amendment, whatever it may be. And if you don't do it, how dare you? That person's a victim. Have you no decency? When the, when the left asks that question, I say, no, you have no decency because you're a leftist. And to be a leftist is to abandon decency when it's inconvenient for you. I know so many conservatives who when something they don't like happens but requires them, it requires a stand on, on, a, certain, on, on a principle. You see this with free speech over and over. It's always the conservatives who will say, well, hold on, we don't want even the, the smarmy, nasty leftists 
who are calling for others to be kicked off of social media or others to be deplatformed. We we don't want we we don't want them to be deplatformed too. We just want there to be real rules that can be enforced. Ah, but this is where the wartime conservatives show up and say, "Well, hold on a second, Buck. What do we do if the rules are constantly different? Don't we have to then demand that the other side suffers ideological casualties too? Don't we have to say, well, if you're going to do this to us, we're going to we're going to do this to you?" Increasingly, that's where our society is heading. It used to be conservatives tried to pull us back to shared principles and neutral ground for public debate. Now we see conservatives realizing that we just keep we're going to keep losing and getting bayoneted on the battlefield afterwards. So maybe we should try something else. And I bring you as a case study in that the story of Kyle Kashuk. Now, Kyle, uh, unlike Hogg, uh, was somebody who by the numbers and I'm not trying to take some cheap shot at, at Hogg's record. I don't know the guy. And I mean, he's acted horribly in public life post this event. He said terrible things about people that are unfair and nasty. But I, I think he got something like a 12 something on the SAT, which to get into Harvard with the 1200 something on the SAT is a very, very hard thing to do. And it only happens if you're a celebrity or in a protected minority category or there's there has to be something else. You're not getting in with a 12 something as a run of the mill white male in particular. Uh, David Hall, I mean, sorry, uh, Kyle Kashev has a 1550 and an, uh, an A average. And he got into Harvard and he's going to go. And then the left decided it was time to strike. In fact, some of his fellow classmates took it upon themselves to find and publicize chat logs, I believe from on, from an online, it doesn't matter, it was essentially text messages, I forget the exact way they were exchanged, but a chat log where uh, Kyle said things that were, were, were gross and wrong and bad and racist. Those are all, they're not overstepping with the assessment of what he said as wrong, but he was a 16-year-old kid and he apologized for it. He was a 16-year-old kid, and he said, look, I was being an idiot, and I, I've learned, and I've also grown as a person post the Parkland tragedy. Remember, David Hogg, untouchable after Parkland. Kyle Kashev, oh, no, he doesn't get the benefit here. He's not given the benefit of the doubt. In fact, as we know, because he is a pro-Second Amendment activist, he's a huge target for the left. So his own classmates, which also, you know, I got to say, you know, people, when your own classmates start ratting you out for politics on anything, it's just a it's a sad day when people would do that, ruin someone's life for comments they made when they're 16, uh, someone that they knew because they want to be a, you know, a hero on social media for a day to all the little leftist idiots running around. But that's what happened. Again, not to say that Kyle doesn't dispute that his comments were, were gross and racist. Uh, no, one, I don't dispute that they were. They were. But he was 16. 16 16-year-olds say really stupid things. Uh, I can tell you I sometimes got very drunk when I was 16, and I saw people do very stupid things when they were 16, 17. Yeah, that's right. We started drinking early in New York. And the person that you or I were uh, at 16 years old is not the person that we are today, unless you're a 16-year-old listening to this, in which case I'm sure you're fantastic and you have excellent taste in radio shows. Uh, He apologized, though. He apologized. Now, who, who wants to guess... Whether this now prominent Second Amendment activist, 18-year-old, soon-to-be Harvard student, when the left decided to uh, put out information about stuff he said when he was a 16-year-old kid that was racist, who wants to guess whether or not he got 
the benefit of the doubt, whether he whether he was given some forgiveness for this. Nope. Another scalp claimed for the left. Kyle Kashuv has had his Harvard acceptance rescinded. And you, you he published today the whole exchange here um, with Harvard. And I mean, you can you can just see what what a bunch of of sniveling cowards on the Harvard admissions committee. And that, that's I don't I guess that's not really a surprise to me, but but they are a bunch of sniveling social justice woke wannabe cowards. Um, because if this is now the standard that anything that you have ever said as a child, he was a child when he said this, he's 16. Anything that you've ever said or done as a child can be used to ruin you in perpetuity as an adult if the left finds it to be advantageous. Uh, our society is in a downward spiral. Where does that stop? What are the outer boundaries of this process? Uh, you know, they, they've done this before. They've gone after people for past positions. And this from the left and from the Democrats who had a manslaughterer, Teddy Kennedy, a former Klansman, Byrd of West Virginia, as the most celebrated senators uh, of, of a generation in the United States Senate. You've got Northam wearing blackface, saying it's not him in blackface, like we're all a bunch of idiots. Still the governor of Virginia. And I see, I'm, I'm willing to extend some forgiveness and grace to the other side. I think we all should as a society, but this is yet another example of they won't do that. Our good faith is never met by the left. It's, they never meet us halfway. They never meet us anyway. We get destroyed. We bend the knee and ask for forgiveness for our transgressions. They say, that's great. Now we're going to take your head. You've admitted it. How do we fight back in a society like that? How do we achieve some sense of, of justice? You know, this is just one case. And they say, oh, Buck, he's a college. He'll go to some other good school. No, but this shows the mentality. This is Harvard University, one of the most elite institutions in the world. And it is overrun by this leftist cowardice, by this groupthink that somehow whatever progressives decide in any moment should be enough to ruin somebody's life. Make an example of them for all the rest to learn from. And you know what this is about? This isn't about Kyle Kashif being a racist. It's about if you are a young person and you want to have some kind of a life in public, you better watch yourself because the left is going to find something to do you in with. So you better be a leftist. That's what this is about. Otherwise, why is Northam still the governor of Virginia, folks? Not only does he still the governor of Virginia, he won't even admit that it's him. And we all know, I mean, this is, this is like the SNL skit where they ask, I know it's the 25th anniversary of OJ, they ask uh, one of the witnesses, can you point to O.J.? And he points and O.J. hides under the desk and says, you know, let the, witness, let, let the record show that he did not point at my client. I mean, this is preposterous. Of course, Northam was the of course, Northam was the guy, you know, wearing, wearing the blackface. Right? I mean, this are like we're all imbeciles. But he still gets to keep his job as a governor of a very important state going this election. Leftists always get to keep their jobs when they come forward and apologize. On issues like this, some of them don't even apologize. The double standard now that the social justice obsessed left is inflicting upon society is pulling us apart at the seams. It's unsustainable. 
None of us know what the rules are anymore because the only rule is that the left will use guilt and victimization and social justice rhetoric and whining and public pressure and boycott to destroy their ideological opponents. They do so in bad faith. They do it dishonestly and they don't care that they have no standards. They don't care that they are dishonorable. In fact, I think they start to wear it now as a badge of honor. Their dishonor. More on Kyle. And then also we got Oberlin College. These, these, these stories encapsulate what is really wrong with the left. Why are we living in a country now where you know people with Trump derangement syndrome, they've completely lost their minds. There's no common ground to be had with them. These incidents show us the rotten inner core of the left. So it's important to dissect it, to look at the anatomy of the evil left and understand how we got to this point. We will have more on this when we come back. We're at the 25-year anniversary of the chase in the uh, white Ford Bronco. I remember it very, very well, not just because it was... Uh, the, the biggest news story in the country for the really the entirety of of uh, the, the duration of that case. I and mean, it was there was nothing else that really touched it in terms of public attention. But it was during the NBA finals, I remember. And they switched off. I think it was the Knicks versus the Rockets. And they switched off the NBA finals to show this white Ford Bronco getting chased slowly down the highway by police cars. Um, but the OJ trial. Remember, that was at a time when the country felt very, very divided and there were real concerns about widespread race riots, depending on the outcome of that of that case. And there was a a real uh, a worry about how this one incident was going to have ripple effects across the broader society, meaning the way that the criminal justice system dealt with this very famous, very rich African-American former athlete. One case can tell you a lot about the state of a country. We are discussing Kyle Kashev. We'll also discuss what's happened at Oberlin College and how they have gotten slapped with a huge judgment for being social justice warriors and defaming some people. That's coming up. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I want to tell you the story of Gibson, uh, Gibson's Bakery in Ohio. Uh, so this is a story that, like the Kyle Kashev debacle of today, where a young man, for comments that he uh, wrote, in a moment of stupidity when he was 16 is now being told years later that he and has taken has taken full responsibility for and apologized for the comments that he cannot go to Harvard uh, because Harvard is a cowardly institution now, uh, at, at least if not overtaken by leftists entirely, that lives in perpetual fear of leftists, which really has largely the same effect. Harvard's also the school where a 
a uh, the law school now has severed ties with a I believe it's a professor, a visiting professor who represents Harvey Weinstein. Now, Harvey Weinstein is a loathsome individual, but lawyers represent defendants all the time. That's what they do. If we're now going to ban people who are lawyers in good standing, who do nothing wrong or unethical professionally, but merely have clients that are disliked, where does that stop? These are not rules that are able to be consistently enforced or should be enforced at all, but here we are. Uh, Harvard should be ashamed of itself, but instead it's a massively powerful and influential institution with $20 billion or so to its, you know, to its name and its endowment. Um, which brings me now to Oberlin College. Now, Oberlin is one of the schools where you'll often hear me make an, a, a quip or a joke about how bizarrely left-wing and social justice-oriented it is. It is the school where, for example, there was an outrage about the cultural appropriation of Oberlin serving sushi in the cafeteria. Yeah, you can't serve sushi in the cafeteria. I mean, sushi's Japanese, but like maybe you can serve California rolls because that's from California, but... This is what they believe. This is what students get outraged about there. Heaven help us all. The story of Gibson's groceries, uh, Gibson's Food Mart and Bakery is what it's technically called, uh, Gibson's Bakery. And uh, what happened there is one that we should all know and know very well because it brings together so many of the elements of the tyrannical and totalitarian left. And it shows what they're willing to do, the pain they'll put people through, and, and how they will embrace, and this is a, a hallmark of the left today, they will embrace injustice against an individual in the name of justice for a group. So what happened was back in 2016, the, the judgment just came down, which is why this is in the news, the, the legal judgment here, and the good guys won. But back in 2016, a student of Oberlin College was trying to buy a bottle of wine with a fake ID. Now, the young store clerk, who was the son and grandson of the owners of Gibson's Bakery, right? His grandfather started it. His dad had been working there for many years, and now he was working there. So it's a family business. Noticed that the individual who was buying one bottle of wine also was trying to steal two other bottles of wine. So he has a fake ID, which is putting the, the uh, grocery and bakery in the position of possibly losing their, their liquor license if they were to make this sale. And that's um, th that in and of itself is, is a, they're breaking. The, this guy's breaking the law, whoever this student was by presenting a fake ID and then also stealing you know, I, I can say that a fake ID is something I'm familiar with. I cannot say and would not say that stealing is something that I would ever be familiar with or condone or think is just something kids do. It's not. And it's terrible. But this student at a very fancy college was stealing from a local family-owned grocery store. And this then led to a scuffle. And the young man who worked behind the desk, turns out he was pretty fast and pretty strong, and he wrestled down the shoplifter when he tried to make a run for it. And then the police came. And keep in mind that this individual ended up being, that they pressed charges for the shoplifting incident. And the student involved here, 
did end up pleading guilty. So he he's a thief. He's a thief. Uh, he's a, he, this is a guy involved in stealing. He in this instance was also not just a student. Uh, he was uh, black. And there were several other students, I believe all who were also black, who joined in with, or no, I'm not sure. I don't think it identifies their ethnicity. It doesn't matter. Uh, but this student was black, which matters for the reasons that I'm about to get into in a moment. Uh, he was black, and this guy tackled him. The store clerk tackled him and held him there till the police arrived. He did plead guilty to charges. The next day, however, after the incident happened, there were hundreds of protesters who gathered across the street from Gibson's Grocery, Gibson's Bakery, whatever. It's called different things in different places. Uh, they gathered there claiming that Gibson's was a racist institution, was a racist store, and that people should no longer do business with it. The dean of students at Oberlin College, Meredith Raimondo, was a part of this protest, brought them pizza, passed out flowers, uh, flyers rather, and became involved with this, gave them money to pay for supplies. So the school was assisting, aiding and abetting, you could say, in a protest outside a family-owned, multi-generational little bakery in a little college town where everyone's yelling that they're racist because a black student tried to steal stuff, was tackled, and arrested for it. I, 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 I am willing to bet that the store clerk, had he seen a person of any ethnicity trying to steal from him, would have had a problem with it. And I don't even know how these protesters, well, I'll get into the way they justify this kind of behavior. But the claim was not that he was innocent. So now, is it the position of the Dean of Oberlin, the Dean of Oberlin students, Meredith Raimondo, and these hundreds of protesters that it is racist to confront somebody who is a thief if that person is black? Is that their position? Because otherwise, it's not, it's not clear what their position is. The guy did steal, and he was confronted for it, and did plead guilty to it, and there's no dispute of the facts of that. Ah, but Gibson's needs to be punished. And not only were there students involved in this, but the college, Oberlin College, Wokeness University, you could say, or Wokeness College. I don't know if it's a college or university. Oberlin's known mostly for music and for social justice lunacy. Uh, but, the, but Oberlin decided that they would no longer buy any baked goods from Gibson. Ah, so the school now, remember what happened here. Black student steals, gets tackled, police arrive, arrest him. He stole. That's what happened. But racism. That's, the, that's where the story, but racism. How? It's not clear. Racism. And now the school takes action against the bakery and will no longer buy their baked goods. These protests go on for some time. And people are handing out uh, flyers that they're saying that uh, the store was racist and that people should stop shopping there. Now, let's understand what this really means. 
They're now in a small town. There's a store, small business operating on, I'm sure, razor thin margins, probably barely making payroll. And for doing absolutely nothing wrong, this family-owned, multi-generational bakery now has hundreds of students with the university backing them and giving them supplies and money and sending faculty members to be a part of this, claiming that this bakery is racist. What more horrible thing could they even come up with? Does anyone think that this could not have resulted in Gibson's closing down, people losing their jobs, maybe the the you know the owners of Gibson having to lose their home as a result as well, can't pay their mortgage, no longer have an income stream. A jury ended up hearing a defamation case here, and uh, and they didn't buy Oberlin trying to defend itself by saying that they were just they were allowing the free speech of their students because we know that's not what happened. You you look at the case, you look at the facts; it's clear Oberlin wanted to jump on the bandwagon here. Just like the faculty at Duke University during the Duke lacrosse gang rape hoax, because that's what it was, a hoax, Duke lacrosse, uh, the Duke administrators and Duke professors signed a letter and, oh, this is terrible, and it shows the, the systemic racism in society. And, oh, I don't know what they thought it showed, but it was a hoax. So it showed nothing other than a lot of professors on these campuses. They're so cowardly. It's so rare for these tenured academics and these overpaid administrators at these universities that have just, all they do is talk about social justice. Meanwhile, they're the reason that a lot of young Americans are locked in debt they'll never be able to pay. There's that. And while they're paying themselves and their faculties fat benefits and great salaries to do very little and be effectively unfireable as long as you're a leftist. But back to the Facts of this case at Oberlin and Gibson's Bakery. Uh, Dr. Ray Bondo, who is the dean who is helping the students, handed out flyers. Flyers that said things like, don't buy. This is a racist establishment with a long account of racial profiling and discrimination. End quote. Does anyone want to take a guess right now? How many complaints of any kind had ever been lodged about Gibson's Bakery Officially to the police or just to the college, a complaint of any kind that there was racial profiling or racist behavior at this decades long bakery in this little town in Ohio. That's right. You all got it right. Zero. Never, never once a complaint about a racist incident. Never once a complaint about uh, the owners or, or anybody involved with this with this just it's just a bakery folks just people trying to trying to make nice cookies and bread for people sell it to them so they can pay their bills and they can eat good bread and you know everyone goes home happy it's all it is it's a small business it's people working hard to try to be able to provide for their families and a and a bunch of brats and a college brat who's a thief and a criminal took it upon themselves to try to ruin these people to ruin them to ruin their lives take away their business and Oberlin College was a part of it, magnified it, helped pay for it, publicized it. Well, Oberlin College got taken to court. Uh, and Oberlin, I can tell you, and I am very happy to see this, has been uh, 
hit with a $33 million judgment for defamation for being a part of this uh, this social justice mob that tried to destroy a family-owned small business for no reason other than the leftists on campus were looking for a target. There was no racism here. You had somebody who was a thief and should have, should have made better choices getting caught and getting punished. That's not a racial issue. That's a don't be a thief issue. But the college didn't see it that way. The college saw it as an opportunity to grow, to grow their connection to their students by forgetting about the facts, dispense with the truth, and go with the narrative. And the narrative here was, this store is racist. It has a history of racism. Don't shop. Let's destroy it. And the college will no longer buy from it. And now Oberlin's going to have to write them a check, people say, for probably more like $22 million, but... This is justice, my friends. It's rare, isn't it? It's rare that this really happens. But Oberlin having to write a check for $22 million out of its, I'm sure, fat endowment uh, is great. And if Oberlin College had to shut its doors because of this, I would not shed any tears because maybe Oberlin has to be made an example of as an institution. This is wrong. Administrators, faculty, not only shouldn't have taken part in this, they should have told the students, what do you think you're doing here? You're lying about people to destroy them because you don't like the reality of what happened here when the only person that really transgressed was a thief, was someone who broke the law. And I would note, broke the law in a way that it does hurt business. You know, theft hurts businesses. The social justice left, though, finally has to pay for something. That's the good news. The bad news is that we're going to need another 100 cases just like this with massive judgments that will hopefully cripple some of these factories of leftist lunacy that are operating as college campuses. And maybe then things will start to change a little bit. Maybe there'll be some professors who feel empowered to speak out and tell their students that they have to act like adults and they have to base their beliefs on the facts and not what makes them feel good and not the virtue signaling that in many cases destroys people who are innocent and who did nothing wrong. This is the feel-good story of the week, as far as I'm concerned. The bad guy gets tackled, gets prosecuted, found guilty. The school that lies about the people that tackled the bad guy are, uh, the school's writing a huge check, and Gibson's going to be very rich. That's right, now they might be selling some caviar. That sounds like fun to me. We'll be right back. Lower income and minority majority communities are the ones who are paying the price for climate change right now for pollution with impunity by corporations who've been able to purchase the outcomes and the safety from any consequence for their actions so in our plan we put them first we make sure that we invest in their communities to make them more resilient that the jobs of today and tomorrow wind and solar the two fastest growing jobs in the united states are the jobs that they are trained for so that they have the skills to work them. Let me translate what Beto is saying here. He's pandering to the minority communities that he needs to vote for him. So he's saying that basically, like, we're just going to take money from people and give it to you because we owe it to you because climate change is hurting you more because I say so. And, like, then you'll vote for me. 
cool, cool. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's Beto for you folks. Got some polls to talk about, also Iran stuff. I don't know which one you care about more, the polls or Iran. We'll do one or both of those things coming up next. Polls? Who's polls? It's 500 days out, folks. Polls don't really matter all that much. But in the media, we love our polls. And Iran, we're not going to war, hopefully. That's coming up. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. We're squeezing them very hard. Uh, with, with sanctions. With sanctions, that the Treasury Department's done an excellent job of, of pursuing. And that's why you see them striking out with these attacks on vessels in the Persian Gulf. Um, the sanctions are really hurting. Well, Iran for 40 years has engaged in this kind of attacks uh, going back to the 1980s. In fact, Ronald Reagan had to reflag a lot of vessels going through the Persian Gulf and ultimately take military action against Iran in 1988. These unprovoked attacks on commercial shipping warrant a retaliatory military strike. Some strong words there from Senator Tom Cotton. And the situation with Iran and the Persian Gulf is... Uh, getting more tense by the day. And we're now looking at the possibility of Iran intentionally and egregiously and flagrantly violating the uh, now granted, it was part of an agreement that we've now pulled out of, but Iran had agreed to not enrich uranium to a certain level. It said it, it, it will soon as a retaliation for what it feels is the U.S well, pulling out of the deal and also all of our comments about Iran attacking these uh, oil, uh, these oil tankers. Iran has now threatened to exceed its uh, or, or expand on its enrani- uh, enriched uranium stockpiles. And if it does this, it would be going beyond the uranium caps from the 2015 nuclear deal. Now, this is happening while the Europeans are desperately trying to come up with some way to salvage that deal and the Iranians are hoping to that their pressure both the saber rattling well more than just that their attacks on these vessels in the Persian Gulf was actually technically in the Gulf of Oman I believe which is just uh, outside of the Straits of uh, Hormuz but the Iranians are thinking that they might be able to pressure I don't know, pressure Trump back into this, pressure the Europeans to make even more concessions than they're already willing to make to try to keep this deal alive. Let's just understand this. It's very unlikely, at least to me, that President Trump is going to give in to any of this nonsense. And the Iranians are playing with fire. Before I tell you what I think is really at work here and what's happening, let me just say that there's a, a common fallacy You see this in much of the media when dealing with any Mideast dictator or theocracy that the other side, in this case, the mullahs in Tehran and the the Guardian Council and the true power at the top of the Iranian regime, that the other side is really um, smart and savvy, thinking strategically, and they don't make mistakes. The Iranians, uh, the Iranian regime often acts in a reckless and thuggish manner, has made plenty of mistakes. And in that sense, there's a good and a bad. The the good is, well, we're not working 
across the table from some chess champions here that will just outthink us on every move. That's, I think, for most of us, a heartening thing. But on the bad side of the equation, it means that there can be miscalculation. It means that the Iranians could do some stupid stuff that lead us to do some stuff in response that then escalates and cycle of violence, so on and so forth. And that's why Tom Cotton's saying that there should be a military strike as a reprisal for what they've already done shows you just how serious the situation is. Um, but now I step back and I say that the Iranians can so quickly threaten to put themselves on a breakout trajectory to nuclear weapons, to, to a uh, wep- uh, weapons-grade uranium enrichment, uh, which would be that they'd get to 20% again, and that, that from there it's very easy to get to weapons-grade uranium. So they can start building up those stockpiles. And this is what we've been worried about all along, those of us who thought this was a really bad deal, that an Iran that can quickly just turn on the spigot to 20% enrich uranium, and then from there it's just a quick jump to weapons-grade, which means that they have the stuff to put into weapons very quickly, um, that's a big problem for us. This just shows you that all, all the Obama nuclear deal really did was hit a pause button with Iran's nuclear program and get no change in Iranian regime behavior. If anything, just made them emboldened, certainly made them richer, opened up economic markets to them. And there's, there was no good faith from them as a result of this. They did not change their behavior. They continued to fund terrorist proxy armies all across the Middle East. The Obama deal was, speaking of lacking strategic thought and, and making bad decisions, the Obama deal was a really bad deal. Trump was right to pull us out of it. We're seeing this now. But my concern remains that there will be some escalation of this that then leads us to think that, well, we are going to have to do a whole lot more militarily. And I'm going to say it, it's, it's, a, it's a red line for me with this administration. No more, no more Mideast wars. No, no, we're not, we're not going to topple the mullahs. We're not. And I don't think that's going to happen. I, I, and I believe that right now there's a lot of fear mongering around that. That's bad faith fear mongering, fear mongering from people who just like to talk about how Trump is going to lead us into a disastrous war, even though Obama led us into a war with still a purpose that we would have to sit around and try to decipher, which was Libya, did nothing about the disaster that was Syria that then led to terrorist attacks in Europe and here on the the homeland and the massive rise of ISIS, which he had said was the JV team, which was clearly not, and escalated troop levels in Afghanistan and had a huge spike in casualties and killed in action in Afghanistan, the media, the, the anti-war movement disappeared under Obama, which to their everlasting shame. I mean, there are a few code pink people running around still, but for the most part, the anti-war media disappeared, which was shameful and just shows you what a bunch of hacks they are. Uh, you know, they pretend to care. Oh, it's about the troops. It's about the troops. But then when troops are being killed, but it's a Democrat president, all of a sudden to the left, the troops don't matter as much, it seems. What does that tell you? Um, But Trump is not going to go to war with Iran. Will he bloody the Iranians uh, up a little bit, if need be? Will we have a replay of the tanker war, which people are referring to a lot these days, where the U.S. uh, destroyed half the Iranian Navy in an afternoon? Yeah, that might happen. And that might be the best option. 
it might be necessary to show the Iranians that, you know, they're, they're a little what they've done here by attacking these vessels is, is a, a very mafia esque thuggish reminder, you know, nice straight of Hormuz there be bad if something happened to it. So we might have to say back to them, OK, forget about the nuclear deal and all that for a moment. If you think you're going to shut down the Strait of Hormuz, the price that will be exacted against your military uh, will be jaw dropping. That that may happen. And, and I think that as long as that's within defined parameters and that that does not lead to a look, there is no scenario in which Iran should become our problem, as in. Iran is a country that we are trying to rebuild or we're overthrowing the government. We're trying to oversee elections. We've been there. We're not doing that again. Full stop. To the point where I will oppose the administration. I will, I will oppose Bolton or anybody who's pushing for that. So I'm, I'm drawing a line in the, in the sand on this, so to speak. Uh, that's unacceptable to me. Strikes that punish Iran? Yeah, we can do that. Anything that starts to feel like regime change and invasion... Hard pass, my friends. We've all learned our lessons from this. Hard pass. We'll be right back. People need yeah. to understand, again, a false narrative by the Democrats where I was there in FY15 when those facilities were built. The, the so-called cages, which I don't call cages, they're large facilities to keep children away from adults. They were built in FY15. You know, uh, uh, a separation of family members that weren't relatives was happening in FY15. So, again, it's a false narrative. If they really were educated on what exactly this president is doing, look, the data, 89%, 9% of every, uh, 9 out of 10 of everybody ICE arrested this past year were either convicted criminal or pending criminal charges. The Trump administration is doing a great job. Problem is, we need to get out there and educate American people on facts versus the false narrative being pushed by the Democrats and the, and the liberal media. So Tom Homan's about to become the immigration czar, which is great. And as I've told you, I've had many long conversations with Tom in green rooms about what's going on at the border. And he, I will have you know, whenever he has seen one of my segments, he says, you're a guy who actually knows what's going on at the border and you're really squared away. And I appreciate that, Tom. So thank you. He always says that uh, he, he came out recently and he said, I agree with everything you said and you actually know what you're talking about. Now, Tom knows, Tom knows a heck of a lot more about it even than I do. But it's still nice when you get somebody who is the real deal, who's giving you a high five, saying at least the information you're sharing and the analysis you're giving is what someone who has worked the issue for 30 years and knows what's going on would want said on TV. So I, I do appreciate that from Tom. Uh, but notice how he keeps saying the false narrative, the false narrative. This isn't just an issue of and, and increasingly this is going to be the case as we get into the election season here. And you're going to have both sides trying to make their case to the public about what needs to be done on immigration. Increasingly, the the truth will show itself that this isn't we have a different approach to immigration than the Democrats, and we just need to sort this out. This is that they are actively lying about this all the time. The media are spreading falsehoods about immigration, and I run through them on the show pretty regularly just so we don't forget uh, that's not just something I say to be inflammatory. They are they lied about the caravans never going never going to get to America. They said they lied about uh, how there was no fraud going on at the border and there were no families that were not really families. Uh, they lied that there was no crisis at the border. They, they lie after lie after lie. And unfortunately, lies are strategic in nature. A lot of the time, they just will lie to cover for the Democrats during a period when it's going to be a it's going to be a few bad news cycles for them, and they don't want Republicans to, in the mind of the public and the voting public particularly, 
gain any ground here. So this is a, these are strategic propaganda decisions that are made. I mean, I don't think that the prominent news anchors and, and Democrats who are running around lying about there being no crisis at the border, I don't think in their hearts they really believed there was no crisis, but they just knew that was a way to blunt the Republican narrative at that time. You know, the, 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 the timing on these issues and the way that these issues are, are handled is critical. I mean, a, a great example of this blunt the narrative effort that you see from, from Democrats, a, a great example of this was uh, Susan Rice after Benghazi. There was no way that, we were, that, that she was going to be able to keep this, oh, it was a video, and that was never going to hold. But it only had to hold for a few days. It only had to wait until a little time had passed. Other narratives and storylines could be concocted and they could, you know, it's about limiting the damage. This is why people say things. There's a whole industry out there about, oh, you know, get ahead of this or you want to set the narrative. When you talk to people about crisis PR, you know, you go forward, tell it all, tell it the first time, tell it truthfully. All these things you're told about crisis PR, it, it applies to politics as well, quite obviously. And one of the ways it applies to politics is that if the media can prevent the public from really experiencing and seeing and understanding just what a disaster the Democrats have, have pushed their southern border to become, uh, that's, that's tremendously politically valuable. And so that's why the delay tactics are not, that's not just something to, to dismiss and say, oh, who cares? The delay tactics are very important uh, to make take note of and to push back against and to call out. You know, oh, now they'll say, yeah, there's a crisis at the border. Right, well, the, the crisis is getting so deep that before you know it, the answer they're going to offer is, well, let's just amnesty everybody. Sure, there's a crisis, but we'll just amnesty everybody. And, you know, there are other lies, too. False narrative, false narrative. It's not, this isn't, as Tom Holman is saying, this isn't, well, we have our view on immigration, they have their view on, on immigration, and we're having an honest discussion about what should happen. This is, they are lying about this all the time. And on immigration, Democrats lie their faces off. And he's saying, look, this, we need to get the public to understand what's really happening here because ultimately on immigration, the facts are on the side of the right. Oh, family and child separation is not an answer to every question about immigration. But if you turned on most of the fancy news shows on the left, you know, CNN, MS and ABC and all the rest of it. If you turned it on to see what they had to say, you would get the impression. You would get the impression that that's not that that's not the case. Um, and you would certainly think that the American people are not with you know, if you'd feel like the American people are not with the Republican Party on this, but they really are if they know, if they know what's happening. Um, you know, the the news anchors seem to think that everything that that is said on on television about immigration should be followed with. But what about family and child separation? As if that's the only thing that's ever gone on. Uh, and if that, that if that wasn't just effectively, we're going to prosecute people for violating the law. And whenever you violate the law in this country, if you have children with you, they're going to be separated from you. Here's what Tom Homan says, you know, sanctuary cities, another area where there's just lies told all the time. People say, oh, there won't be law enforcement cooperation from the immigrant community if there's any enforcement of a law against legal aliens. Says who? Who? Polls? Who's polls? Who? Uh, says who? They don't have it. I know. 
That was that was Michael Cohen's greatest moment of glory, and it has definitely gone gone downhill since then. But here's what Tom Homan, immigration czar to be. Here's what he says about DeSantis and Florida sanctuary city policy. Play 22. Uh, the government DeSantis did the exactly right thing. I hope it catches on because what he did will result in in the citizens of Florida being more safe. Look, the bottom line is when you re, when you knowingly release a public safety threat back into the public when they could be removed from the United States because they're here in violation of federal law, that is just that's a stupid policy. Because anybody that's watching this show can go to Google right now and look at what are the recidivism rates right now. Fifty percent of criminals re, will, will reoffend the first year. Up to seventy-five percent will reoffend within next five years. So why not take those people who are in the country illegally? Already, already disrespect our laws, commit a crime against a U.S. citizen. Why not remove them from the country mm-hmm. and enforce our laws? And that makes the communities much safer. I mean, I agree with Tom, but here's another one: Why not just enforce our laws? If our laws are bad, we should change them. But if our laws on immigration are not bad and we choose not to enforce them, then we are accepting a state of lawlessness, and that is what the Democrats have done. Now. What could what could the GOP do at this point? I mean, it's, it's all in the only person who can get anything done is Trump. That's why he's trying with tariffs in Mexico. The only person to do anything is Trump. We know the Congress is not going to be able to move on this in a meaningful way. They'd much rather have this to be an issue that they could fight it out and and get into each other with for trying to raise donations and all the rest of it. But here's here's Mitch McConnell, cocaine Mitch, on Democrats and their obstruction. Play twenty three. I think they're suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. You know, whatever he's for, they are reflexively against. But this is humanitarian. This is not, you know, we want to build a wall. We think the president's made a good case for that. That's not what this is about. This is just the humanitarian part of the problem on our side, obviously, of the border. Uh, Cocaine Mitch, it's not just humanitarian. It's rule of law. It's security issues, national security it's counter-drug policy, it's the opioid epidemic, it's funding of the cartels, it's human smuggling and human trafficking and the burden put on communities of illegal aliens flooding in and using public services and not not adapting effectively to their new societies because they come in under illegal auspices. And There's a lot, Mitch. It's not just about the humanitarian component. And this is where Republicans worry me. There are a lot of Republicans that are just simply not strong on immigration and the only hope we have of dealing with this crisis comes down to one person, Donald Trump. You clearly believe there was a, a, a group of people working against you. Do you think President Obama was behind it? Uh, I would say that he certainly must have known about it because it went very high up in the chain. I'm not going to make uh, that statement quite yet, but I would say that President Obama had to know about it. Very simple. It's very simple. There was no crime. There was no collusion. The big thing's collusion. Now there's no collusion. That means they set it was a setup. When you look at Strucken Page and they're talking about an insurance policy just in case she loses, that was the insurance you know, policy. Let's look at what we know about the whole Russia collusion situation. Let's look at what we know. There was no collusion, so there was no crime that is now established. To the degree that we can that we could ever establish this. We've had a special counsel, we've gone through everything. It's not there. There was no collusion. Okay. It was a setup. There were individuals involved in this process who lied. They got fired from the FBI. Their text messages show they had bias. Their text messages show there was politicization. 
It was a setup. Who was involved in that setup? That's an open question still, or the full extent of who was involved. And then we get to the question that upsets Democrats, I think, more than anything else out there. Did Obama know about this? Remember that Democrats don't have much to point to for a a legacy for their party, for stretching back to the era of the Clintons now. That is that is positive. That is without without the Obama years, people would say, "When was the last time a Democrats did anything worthwhile?" Now I know a lot of you are saying, "Well, the Obama years weren't particularly worthwhile either," but to Democrats, they certainly are. And they have now seen their party shift. It has become more left wing, more progressive, and it's a party that is built on the foundation of a return to what they believe is the the glory of Obamaism instead of looking forward to an era of renewed Clintonism, right? We have, we have entered the Obamaist era in democratic politics. And so that means that he will become a figure that is not able to be openly criticized without the most fierce counterattack from the left. And that also means that anything that would truly undermine the legacy that they are still constructing around Obama will be fought with everything that they have. And that's where this brings me to the reality of what Obama knew and when did he know it on Russia collusion and the efforts to try and stop Trump from becoming president and then undo his presidency once he had won the presidency. What did he know and when did he Obama, and when did he know it? The refrain from journalists on this, you know what it will be right away. They're going to claim that this is a conspiracy theory, that it's horrible that Trump would even raise this. Well, let's take a step back for a moment. I've seen in recent uh, in recent weeks a lot of explanation of the surveillance of Trump or of the Trump campaign, which, keep in mind, they told us that was a crazy thing to say. I remember it. In the early days of was there surveillance of Trump or Trump-associated individuals, the Democrat line was, that is a terrible conspiracy theory. How dare anyone ever even suggest that? It's just completely outrageous. It's completely unfair. Clearly, there was no one in the Trump campaign who was being spied on Oh, actually, no, there were people being spied on. Whoops. But it was justified. That's what they said. It was justified. Okay. Well, here's what they're going to have to come up with now. Here's where you're, you're going to have to find a, a, a Democrat Party line that will hold together. And I, I don't know what they think it'll be because this is going to be a tough one. If the spying was justified and it was all duly processed and went through, in the 2016 election period. If everything, if all the I's were dotted, the T's were crossed, FISA court, head of the FBI, does anyone think it is credible that Obama did not know? Now, when you factor, uh, you know the answer to this. Of of course, Obama knew. We're just going to have to figure out, one, how much of it, how can we prove that? And I wouldn't be surprised if if this came up in the inspector general report and they say that either Obama is going to claim executive privilege over those documents or they they can't get access to them. There will be you want to see a cover up. Just wait until they start poking around 
looking to find out what the Obama administration, what President Obama himself knew about all of this and what he allowed to go forward. Wouldn't that also explain a lot? If President Obama had just given, and you know, it's just like dealing with a mafia boss, right? They always say this about Trump. Oh, he doesn't have to say the thing for his underlings to know what they want. Does anyone think it would have been hard for Obama to tell James Comey? And let's also, come on, they could have just had a conversation and known that it was off the, known that there was no recording or it was off the record. And Obama could have passed along exactly what he thought about this. But if you were McCabe and Comey and Strzok and Page and these others who were all involved in this effort, if you were Brennan at the CIA running around with your delusions and you had gotten word from the commander in chief himself that this was something that he was on board for and you assumed that Hillary Clinton was probably going to win the election anyway, but you would look like a hero after she won the election if you had dug into this. You know, maybe, folks, I know people don't ever bring this up. Maybe the game all along here was they were going to bring criminal charges against Trump after he lost as a private citizen. Why doesn't anyone ever bring that up? Why doesn't everyone think about this? You know, maybe the, the whole plan here was to get Trump on something. And that's why they were fishing and fishing and fishing. And even though they assumed Hillary would win, Trump after losing that election to Hillary, would be defenseless in many ways against whatever the deep state decided to do to him. You know, they already destroyed Carter Page and George Papadopoulos' Fourth Amendment rights. They've already abused the process. We know that. That's established. But if they could go, if they got something on Trump and were able to bring some charge, what, charge against him after he had lost the election with Hillary as the president, does anyone think that Hillary would have objected to that? you got Nancy Pelosi saying she wants Trump locked up now. So when you, when you think about what it would have meant to this whole process to have Obama in the loop, even if in, in a somewhat informal fashion, in the loop about what was going on, he did know about Russian interference. Is it credible that they said that, we, that, that he would have met with Clapper and Brennan, these anti-Trump zealots, and it never would have come up that they believe that Trump himself was tied into this effort. That's not no serious person could say that, right? No serious person would believe that. You know, when, when did Obama know about this and what did he tell people? It would have been so easy as commander in chief, as the favorite politician of the American left to just give a little bit of a wink and a nod to a few bureaucrat partisans like Comey and Brennan and Clapper, all of whom really like their taste of power in D.C. You know, you have to remember for these for these senior lifelong bureaucrats, people like Comey and McCabe and Clapper. They get a taste of being important and being powerful and being even a little bit famous without the money and without the freedom that other people in society, people like Donald Trump have. And there is a resentment behind all that. There's both a sense of self-righteousness. You know, they chose the honorable public servant path. And then also the resentment of why should other people get to enjoy themselves more and, and have greater freedom and, ha and, and ha have this life where they can do whatever they want when running the, you know, being the DNI, which people always think the DNI is really almost a ceremonial position. The guy doesn't have any power, doesn't really do anything. Just another bureaucrat. It's another high-level intel bureaucrat. They're, I'm telling you, they're going to fight like mad, though, to
to prevent information about what Obama knew from coming out because that starts to look really bad. Then we have to start asking questions like, do we, do we even have a, uh, a, a government that we can trust at all anymore on the federal bureaucrat side? Um, if, if Obama was, was telling them to go forward with this and they're able to hide that up until this point, I think it would have some very troubling implications for whom we could trust within the government going forward. And what would that mean? But Obama had to know. He had to know. And it doesn't, there's no effort among journalists to do this, no effort among journalists to figure this out. So I think that that's where you know you can start to look for additional clues. It's when the journos have no interest in a story that you know is a story that the rest of us have to dig in. So I will continue to dig in on this. Number one, we have the greatest income inequity in the history of the United States of America since 1902. And the fact of the matter is, there is plenty, plenty of money to go around. The first thing I would do as president was eliminate the president's tax cut. First thing Democrats want to do, folks, just like the first thing Republicans want to do in the other direction, the first thing that Joe Biden's going to do is raise your taxes. He's going to take more of your money. He's going to tell you you're going to get more in goods and services back from the government. He's going to tell you that you know this is what fairness is, that this is the way that it has to go if we're going to live in a more fair society. Well, you say, well, what is fair? And who determines what constitutes fairness? The answer is, well, the Democrats who are in power, the Democrats who think that they have a better handle on what each and every American should have or be allowed to have, um, There is plenty of money to go around, he says. Uh, This is, unfortunately, at odds with our mounting national debt. And this is a a bipartisan problem, I will say that. This is an issue that we have yet to seriously tackle as a society. And there's another component of this, too, and that is the... I know this is an unpopular topic with a lot of folks, the intergenerational theft that our system is currently allowing. Let me explain. For some of you who are the boomer beneficiaries of this, get get frustrated. This is just the truth. That the programs right now that are dependent on government spending that are so popular are not paid for. Future generations are being told that they will have to pay for them. That also means that you'll have, one, a raise in taxes for those programs, two, Uh, Keep in mind, you also have debt service that goes along with that. So it's not just the money that's spent. It's the money spent on the money that has been spent through servicing the debt, which is going to get to be uh, much larger. And as interest rates historically normalize, which hasn't really happened yet, that's going to be a a very real concern. Uh, But there's going to be a, a whole movement afoot of people saying, well, hold on a second. Why am I paying all of these taxes? Why am I paying for these social programs that I am not going to be able to have? I'm not going to be able to enjoy. Social Security is probably fixable. They have to make a few tweaks to it. Medicare is not. And Medicare is something that can't continue as it is indefinitely. And yet the Democrat Party is essentially now a Medicare for all party. So their their choice here or their their decision would be to double down on this even more. But there's not plenty of money to go around. The math does not add up eventually. We're going to have to start cutting spending. have to think about this. And on the intergenerational theft issue, there's also a very interesting study that came out over the weekend. Um, I forget. I think it was either in CNBC or Bloomberg or one of these things where they looked at 
what it would what it would take in the 1970s if you put aside 5% if an average person in a major US city put aside 5% of his or her income how long it would take to have a down payment on a house and in cities like Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, you, know, you name it. You, you look at the major cities, but particularly decided were San Francisco, I think, New York, and at Los Angeles. In the 1970s, an average person putting aside 5% of his or her salary a year would have had a down payment for a, a you know, mid-price for the market house in five years. So if you come out of school and you're making an average salary and you're living in Los Angeles and you and you save 5% a year, in five years, you're going to have a down payment for a house. You're, you'll be 27. You'll be able to put a down payment for a medium-sized house. Does anyone want to guess what that number is now for major cities in the United States? It's closer to 40 years. So if you are an average wage earner trying to get into an average home in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, you are going to be putting aside 5% of your income, which given the rate of rents and all the living expenses, is that's not easy. You're supposed to 5% of your income aside in savings for a house, you know, 5 or 10% of your income aside for 401k. Uh, it's, not, it's not easy stuff when you start to really look at it. And you're going to be saving, you're going to have to save up for about 40 years before you have, remember, that's not buying a home outright. That is a down payment on a home. 40 years. I think it was 36 years in New York City. This is a problem. And this is not a problem that people are going to say, they're going to want to believe, oh, that's just the market speaking. No, it's not. Because there's been federal government policy stretching back for 70 years of, incentivizing housing construction and you know build all the all this all these different loan programs and efforts and incentives to get to a home ownership society this is what we're supposed to be in a home ownership society and then you have in some of the major cities and some of the major urban areas another issue that comes up and that is that they're trying to limit the housing supply because the housing because housing scarcity is necessary to keep the prices of what are overwhelmingly boomer owned homes which are often used as ATM machines via things like a home equity loan they got to keep those prices high so there's a lot of regulations in place and a lot of a lot of policy that's counterproductive to prevent new housing from going in now, this is true in cities. This is not true in rural areas, and I'm not saying this is the same across, but this is true in New York City. It is true in San Francisco and Los Angeles. There are these, it's true in Portland. It's true in these more mid-sized cities now, too. And you might say, well, Buck, but the young people just need to move where exactly? The jobs are increasingly, new job growth is, is concentrated in the major urban areas, too. So you're drawing young people into major urban areas. You're telling them that they have to save up for 40 years before they can have a down payment on a home, you know what they're going to do at some point when the voting block gets large enough? The millennials, who are often made fun of by boomer-controlled media, are going to turn around and say, the answer is just to have the government pay for all this stuff, and it'll be somebody else's problem. This is how we get closer to socialism. The boomers have effectively set up a system that is turnkey for democratic socialism. We're pretty close to it now. I would really like to see a return of 
major and worthwhile debate in public. And there's going to be a lot of talk about how these uh, Democrat debates that are coming up are, are, are somehow going to serve this purpose. But I, I don't I don't think that that's true because the Democrats are all effectively playing for the same team and just doing variations on a theme. I want people with diametrically opposed points of view, and I really mean this, diametrically opposed points of view who are representative of large constituencies, who have a lot of power, a lot of public influence, influence over the discussion that's going on 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 national level issues. I want them to have to defend their ideas and to have a real discussion and to have a real exchange about who's right and who's wrong. I, I don't like this echo chamber effect that our society has fallen into where you're all, everyone's only preaching to the choir. Now, I also don't agree that it's a good thing, and I just went through a year of this at the Hill, to have a, a, a forced neutrality in discussion or at least a forced, uh, a forced civility where you can't say what you really want to say because it will inflame the other side too much. No, I want people to be able to say what they want to say about issues of public importance about the things that matter. And we should start to push for this. And I think one of the only ways to get it is to call people out. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a perfect example. She's someone who I believe, well, and this is why she won't debate someone publicly, but if forced to defend the talking points and stream of consciousness left-wing babble that she shares on a regular basis, if forced to defend that, her positions would look foolish and would crumble very quickly. And, and, and I also want to know, maybe I'm wrong about her. Maybe she's a more adept debater, or maybe she, or some of her ideas I should think more about myself. I, but I want to know that. I'd want to see that. Now, I think that's very unlikely, but I would want to see. But she has been out there recently making a lot of noise on a lot of issues that for me are just indicative of somebody who is never really tested in the public sphere. It's one of the reasons I am so completely exasperated with and disgusted by mainstream journalists in this country is that they all, they all run around talking about how they speak truth to power, they hold power accountable. When was the last time a journalist, other than somebody from Fox News, other than a conservative, just a so-called neutral journalist, asked Ocasio-Cortez a tough or challenging question. I cannot remember it. Everyone just goes around taking dictation from this woman who is not very knowledgeable about anything and I think does need, I think she would benefit from being put in her place. I think she's got a little, she's the Prince Joffrey of the Democratic Party. You know, if you step out of line, she puts her little social media minions after you and that's that. Here's what she says, for example, on, and I, I mean, even if you're a prominent Democrat, that's not just for Republicans. But here are some of the areas where I think we should see AOC get asked a real question. I would like her to debate someone on this, and there should be public challenges made. You know, we need intellectual dueling to make a comeback. I never see this happen anymore. You never have somebody who is prominent in the public conversation about important issues who will take a challenge that the only exception to this is presidential debates every four years. And that's, you know, the president is not necessarily the best thought leader or spokesperson for any one issue on, on either side. I want the best. I want to see who can, who can make the case in the most compelling fashion. 
And this is, this is a way of advancing what is good and what is right in society. AOC, for example, has uh, said this about the Hyde Amendment. Remember, the Hyde Amendment was for decades a middle ground position, so-called middle ground position, that Democrats took where there would not be direct federal funding for abortions. This is now what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says about that play for. I think it really depends. And that's really what the Hyde Amendment is about. The Hyde Amendment isn't about abortion per se. Mm -hmm. The Hyde Amendment is is truly about equality of health care and health care access for low income women and women of color and women that get caught in our incarcerate in our mass incarceration system. And so uh, the Hyde Amendment is is about income inequality and it's about women's health care in a system of income inequality. So I think that we need to repeal it. So she's being asked questions there by ABC's Jonathan Carl. So this is this is a perfect place for a journalist to ask real questions. He did not push her on any on any of these issues. He did not push back on how does how does a woman being caught in mass incarceration factor into this this uh, bout of a verbal a uh, verbal diarrhea from uh, this leftist? How does this actually happen? Just blah, 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 all, all the stuff that she's spurting out here. She said something about women caught up in the mass incarceration system. I don't think she means and, and I'd be curious, actually, what she thinks she means. I don't think she means somebody who is in prison and pregnant and would have, although maybe that's part of it. I think what she's referring to would be someone who is pregnant while the husband gets sent off to prison. That's the way that or is in prison. I shouldn't say husband. I should say the father, not Often the case, not husbands, but the father gets sent off to prison. And so the answer that Ocasio-Cortez offers is to abort that child. Uh, that is an abominable and immoral point of view. Why wouldn't a journalist just ask, so that's what you advocate for? Oh, they'll always say it's up to the woman. It's the woman's choice. It's the woman's choice. No, no one ever has to make a tough call here other than the woman. The society doesn't get to make the call. The doctor doesn't get to make the call. This this thing you always hear about in consultation with the doctor. Uh, the doctor can only tell you what the health implications are. The doctor isn't there nor is equipped to help anyone discuss the moral implications of these decisions, really, uh, because those moral implications aren't based upon any medical expertise or knowledge that the public does not have full access to. But she said that what the Hyde Amendment is really about, it isn't about abortion per se. That is, that is a, a ridiculous statement. That is a propagandistic maneuver. She's saying it's not about abortion. It's about something else. No, it is very much about abortion. It is about whether or not tax dollars, which are forcibly taken from you and me, should go directly to paying for people to kill their babies. That is what that is what is that is the issue. We we can pretend there are other issues. We can call it other things. That is the issue. Equality of health care and health care access for low income women and women of color and women that get caught in our mass incarceration uh, system. Why is this and, and how does she view this as a racial issue? What are her implications or what is she really saying? There's, there's no follow up from Jonathan Carl. He just takes he is there to take dictation from AOC. To, to set her up to say whatever she wants and then to take dictation from her in response. You'll notice that with Republican interviewees, this tends not to be the case. 
But yeah, the Hyde, abor- the Hyde Amendment isn't about abortion. Someone should publicly challenge AOC to a debate on how the Hyde Amendment, which is about funding for abortion, isn't about abortion. That should be the topic of conversation. Let's see how she does with that. And then AOC on Joe Biden, given everything that we are hearing about the uh, Me Too movement still. And, you know, I was talking to a woman recently who went off about how, oh, she was a liberal. And she went off about how there was society is moving closer and closer to the handmaid's tale all the time. And this is just bizarre feminist anti-male propaganda that you're constantly hearing. Uh, you've got that thread in society right now. And then you also have this uh, effort to act like there are not these Democrats with very important Democrats to the left, people like formerly Bill Clinton. He's not important anymore. Uh, but Joe Biden, that there's not something strange or, or bizarre about the behavior. And I would just say this. I, I do believe that what Biden, that Biden shouldn't, you know, be chased out of public life for what he's we know about that he's done with women, because I don't think that double standards that hurt the other side are something that any of us should embrace. I do, however, just want to note that if he were a Republican, they would say that he should have to quit and they would yell and scream and boycott and threaten and everything else because the left has no principles. But here's what AOC says about Biden's behavior. Play five. I don't think that voters think that he is necessarily guilty of sexual misconduct or anything like that. Um, But I do think that there may be some discomfort, um, especially seeing some clips this week and, you know, a week before telling a 13 year old, telling her brothers to watch out for her. And and I think there are some things with female voters that it's just not quite locked down. Um, And I think that there's there's some ways to go, but this is also a cultural evolution i think that we're having as a country uh so i don't think it's necessarily about um being punitive in these ways but i do think like in all issues and with all demographics and in all electorates it's not about right and wrong sometimes it's just about whether feeling like someone gets it or not so they're saying he doesn't really get it but he shouldn't suffer any consequences i would from what i remember the comedy made to that girl that she brought up wasn't even that didn't strike me as all that odd or bothersome but now, we, I, I, this is my main point about it. I don't know what is bothersome anymore, really. And I would offer to you that in the era of the, because it's all about power and power dynamics. It's not really about morality and decency and, and kindness and respect for each other. That's not how the left now uses the Me Too movement. Uh, and note that a lot of the most prominent cases of Me Too abuse were very connected, very powerful leftists, Democrats, friends of the Clintons, friends of the Obamas, media people who were revered, who were uh, treated as the best in their fields, uh, amazing individuals by the left. That's that we, we shouldn't just skip past all of that now. Um, we should keep that in mind. But she's saying that, you know, AOC or AOC is saying that Biden, his behavior makes people uncomfortable just remember that if it were a Republican, they would say that he should uh, he should quit. He should be done. And the way that they misconstrue the locker room talk that Trump had on that uh, Access Hollywood tape, that's a perfect example. They always make it sound like Trump was saying that he was he was sexually assaulting women. That's not what Trump said. I'm a guy. I know what he was saying. He was saying that he can be very sexually forward and, and aggressive with women and that they let him because they're OK with it because he's famous. 
So they're always playing games with this. They're always changing the standards around. But AOC gets away with saying insane things on a regular basis and never gets challenged. Journalists don't challenge her. They don't ask her to explain these things. She just babbles on and babbles on. And if you do publicly go after her and, and her, idea, her ideas, not her as a person, if you go after her ideas, you're told that you're a bad person, you're a racist, and you're a sexist. And that's the America we're supposed to live in now. Workers should have more say and be sitting on the boards of large corporations. Yes, I do. Do I believe that we should break up uh, some of the major banks on Wall Street and support credit unions uh, and community banks? Yes, I do. So I think really one of the things that we have to look at is the fact that power in this country rests with just a handful of people. Well, I guess... We'll just address the elephant in the room. I, I don't believe that our current economic system actually works. Um, capitalism by design is extractive, and in order to generate profit in a capitalist system, something has to be exploited. That's land, labor, or resources. And I think that we're in late-phase capitalism, and we know it doesn't work, and we've got to move into something new. And I believe in community ownership of land, labor, resources, and distribution of those resources. And so whatever that morphs into, I think, is what will serve community the best. And I'm excited to usher it in by any means necessary. By any means necessary, Denver City Council member Candice uh, DeBaca or Candy, what is her name? Candace DeBaca, I think it is. Remember the Denver City Council. Now, you might say, Buck, who cares about the Denver City Council? Point is, you got Bernie Sanders, who right now, based on the polling we're seeing, is beating Donald Trump in some of the, uh, the key states. Although that will change very quickly. You'll see a bump for Trump as soon as he starts campaigning and starts taking the fight to the other side. But... The things that were being said here by this woman and by Bernie Sanders as well, uh, ideas like community ownership, um, that this is an we have an economic system that doesn't work. Who has an economic system that does work? Uh, That's what I would like to know. Whose economic system do they really want us to to mirror and adapt to? Uh, Who should we be more like? Um, I'm curious about that. Uh, They never really give us clarity. They just run through the talking points. And we're told that if only Bernie Sanders says a handful of people have all the power in this country. Okay, well, who has who's the handful of people? Is George Soros is Tom Steyer? uh, uh, What's his name? Michael Bloomberg, uh, you know, the most wealthy people in Hollywood. You know, Steven Spielberg and Clooney and DiCaprio. And are, are they part of the are they good or bad? They're very rich and very powerful. Are they part of this? You know, Oprah, a billionaire. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of liberal. All of Silicon Valley, basically all those billionaires, with the exception of Peter Thiel. There's some others. But are, are they the good guys or the bad guys in this whole process? I always want to ask someone like uh, Candace. Uh, well, this woman from the Denver City Council, her name doesn't really appear clearly on my sheet here, or, or, or Bernie Sanders, who is such a fan. Bernie Sanders, the socialist who owns three houses and made almost a million dollars from his last book, which is a lot of money for an author, I can tell you. Uh, Bernie Sanders, many others in the Democratic Party now, they'll talk about community ownership as though everything is a community garden. 
that people can just do a little bit and that they can all enjoy this space together. That's not reality. The interests of individuals and the need for local improvisation based on those interests, absent government intrusion and unnecessary government manipulation in those markets of that property involved with those efforts, that's essential. That, that's a, a lesson that we have been learning. Well, you could argue we've been learning for all of human history, but we have a couple of hundred years now of very good data and results to, to rely on that everybody is going to share in the results equally and we'll, we'll rely on the goodwill of the group for how we're going to go forward and, and handle something, how we're going to work on a commercial enterprise, how we're going to build a company, how we're going to distribute a good or a service. A collectivist approach to this, it always fails. It, it always fails. You know, I, I would ask you, would you rather live or w- would you rather rent a home from somebody who uh, had been living there for years and now is renting out their home and they're going to get all of the rent, they're going to get all of the benefit from your signing on to, to live in that home? Or would you want to rent a home from a, a collective, like a community group where you got you know, a, a thousand people that all own less than 1% of the home and they have no real incentive to do anything. Do you think that home is going to be in better shape or worse shape? Is it going to be in a state of, of constant renewal or a state of disrepair? We, we know this. Individuals react. Human nature is based in individual incentive and ingenuity. That's just the truth. Individual responsibility. That's why Marxism contemporary American liberalism more and more is built on a faulty foundation. They're just wrong about the most fundamental truth, which is that human beings, first and foremost, care about themselves. I've got good news. Well, at least I think it's good news. Good news for me. Turns out that the dad bod is, according to a survey, as published in the New York Post, reputable newspaper, the dad bod is more attractive to women then rock hard abs. That's right. Here's how the post sets this up. Uh, the survey results were published by Planet Fitness, and they show that 78% of people think confidence is king. Nearly four in five among both women and men believe a dad bod is a sign of a man who is confident in his own skin. 65% of people say the dad bod is attractive, while 61% said men with dad bods are sexy which is up 10% on 2018. With body positivity on the rise, the national study showed 23 million men in the United States claim to have a dad bod, 71% of whom believe it is universally accepted. More men with a dad bod this year in comparison to last say they're happier with their body, 79% versus 64%. Having that body type has improved their life in some way. According to the survey, the dad bod has made them more relaxed. Now, this is this is good news for many of us. Now, there are some of you, you know, those of you who are all natural bodybuilders and stuff. You know, I appreciate when you send me your book. Look at me. I, I hold three jobs down and I have an eight pack and I can do a, a million inverted push ups while reciting, you know, Finnish poetry like that's great for you, buddy. OK, but some of us are mere mortals and we like chocolate and naps and eating chocolate before a nap eating chocolate after a nap. But the only part of this that I, I haven't figured out yet is 
Is the dad bod specific only to dads? As I am now able to have more time in the gym and therefore I, I, if, I, if I chose to, I could you know, get in better shape. How much effort do I really want to put into this when, when I'm a non-dad versus, because for the dads out there, you already know, like you know, your, your dad bod is socially acceptable. Now, dad bods are healthy, right? We, everyone should be healthy, whatever that is. And so body positivity, insofar as it's you're healthy, you feel good, and, and, and you have confidence, I think that's a great thing. As long, but you got to be healthy, right? I, I don't think anybody should necessarily you know, skip on the possible or, or should, should forget about the possible downsides of you know, carrying a level of weight that can be a health risk, right? We all want to be healthy. We all want to live long lives and not deal with some of the major issues that can come from it. Uh, but being positive is also a major part of having any transformation. I'm somebody who's lost at my peak. I think I've dropped about 30 pounds of just just whale blubber, uh, which was quite a process. I have to tell you, it took took a little bit of time. Um, but, you know, the, the, we, I feel like we all have our sweet spot too. Our ha- and I feel like the dad bod for a lot of the dads out there is the sweet spot. You know, it's not when you've just been going a little too a little too much, a little too fast at the I'm trying to think, what is the food that will make you gain weight? The f- like, what's the, the ultimate in gaining weight fast? I, I think, I don't know. You can put, a, I can put away a plate of like nachos with everything on them. And I don't even want to know what we're, we're getting into four digit calorie territory. And it's like, that was just an appetizer. So that could be kind of bad for you. But the, the bottom line here, folks, the dad bod is making a comeback, or at least it's, it's pretty popular with the ladies, which is a good thing. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there we have it. Some of you have been asking, by the way, and yes, without getting into details, because some parts of my life do have to remain private, um, I am and have been for quite a while now single. That is uh, all I'm going to share for now on that one. But uh, we'll be back with Roll Call in a moment. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call time, everyone. Yeah. Back in the swamp. Back in D.C. after a little visit up to NYC for Father's Day. Look, I love New York. De Blasio is trying to run into the ground. There's stuff going on up there that I don't love, but I do love that city. As I always tell you, I walk out of Penn Station. I smell the car fumes, the stale urine on the streets, the trash piling up on the corners. And I go, "Ah, this is home. So and then I come back down to the swamp and there's just the stench of lobbyists and other fixers and people jockeying for position here Ugh. i'll take the dc trash over that any i mean the new york trash over that any day facebook.com slash buck sexton by the way i think i'm gonna shave the beard down or get rid of it and see if i want to grow it back I, you know I've, i'm gonna i've been thinking about it a little bit because it's hot in the summertime all right you don't care about my beard you care about what you have to say which is what we do in roll call so here we go Jeremy writes, President Trump should appoint Candace Owens as press secretary. Then when the left goes after her, we can call them racist and sexist. It is, after all, their own standard for anyone that opposes them. 
Well, Jeremy, you will note that I I brought up Candace as a possible White House press secretary. I think she'd be great. I don't know Candace very well. I've talked to her a couple of times, but she's a, she is a, a adept in debate and she's a feisty, fierce lady. And I'm sure she would do, she would do very very well. So if that does end up happening, let's just all agree to be excited about the fact that it it means that I'm I was correct and maybe I got that started. I don't know. Could be. Peter writes, Buck, I'm a podcast listener in Syracuse. I'm a three-time combat vet and have been listening to you since your Saturday show. Wow, Peter, thank you for your service and thank you so much for your loyalty to the Freedom Hut. Uh, The Dems and media may have been shooting themselves in the foot with the story of asylum seekers being housed at Fort Sill, a former Japanese internment holding camp because that was ordered by FDR under Executive Order 9066 which authorized the internment of tens of thousands of American citizens of Japanese ancestry and resident aliens from Japan. FDR was also, wait for it, a Democrat. Anyway, shields high and keep up the solid pace toward becoming the top conservative radio host. Peter, thank you so much. I really do appreciate uh, both the the support, the loyalty, the encouragement, and and thank you so much for your service. Um, As for... FDR and what he did, there's such a rewriting of history that occurs with some of the more famous Democrat presidents. You see this with FDR. You see this with Woodrow Wilson, who was a straight up racist. Woodrow Wilson was a racist in the way that Democrats pretend all Republican politicians are racist, which is to say a real racist. And yet there's the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. They don't call for that to be renamed. Woodrow Wilson, the League of Nations, the internationalism of the Wilson era, all that stuff, that just gets, it it gets whitewashed. It gets uh, either rewritten or skipped over that he was a bad guy and he was, in fact, a racist, a very, very pernicious and nasty racist. Um, Racist, yes. Uh, And so the FDR Japanese internment camp issue, the Democrats just don't get upset about it. They can't rewrite that history, but they don't get angry when they talk about it. They say, well, World War II, you know, make an omelet. You got to break a few eggs. Tough stuff happened. But the children, uh, immigrant children that are being held in the military base and the headlines of that from Time magazine as where Japanese internment camp people, uh, Japanese internment camp detainees were sent. It's just a dishonest reporting. Uh, They were held there during the Obama administration, meaning migrants, uh, immigrants, illegal immigrants. And they have been that's been a military base for over 150 years in continuous operation. So uh, the media should be disgraced uh, or rather should feel ashamed. But instead, they just live with this proud smirk on their faces, despite the disgrace that they are. Brian. To this Electoral College point, if they get 70 more votes this week, 12 states already on the board, including Massachusetts, California, and other leftist states, the Constitutional Republic is done. Could be this week they get to 270. We all need to speak out. See if you can get Charlie Kirk on from Turning Point. He's very vocal on this issue. Thanks, Buck. Uh, Brian, good idea. I'll reach out. I haven't talked to Charlie in a while. He's been super busy with some of his uh, conferences and things, but I am always happy to hear from uh, Chucky K, Charlie Kirk. And uh, we'll see if we can get him to come chat. I really appreciate it when he filled in on the show for what was that? Three? I think he did three days. Um, we had that was my China week. China. When we had that all star 
lineup of guest hosts. And we, we, we China! Always, there we go. We always have an all-star lineup of guest hosts. I mean, the guest hosts we have are all excellent. I hope you all agree. I, I look very closely at the comments whenever there is a guest host to make sure that you think that we're making the best use of your time. I never want someone to say, oh, it's time to listen to the Buck Sexton show, whether live or on podcast, and then have you say, oh, there's a guest host. I'm going to skip this one. You know, I don't want that to happen. Obviously, I want you to be more excited when I'm actually hosting, but hopefully I don't have to tell you that. Rich writes, Mueller demonstrated one can toss the turd in the punch bowl from the exit doorway. Yeah, Rich, I have a different way of saying that. Yours is a bit more uh, scatological, but I think that uh, what Mueller did was just as he was walking out of the building, he just decided to drop a match in the drapes and say, I didn't do anything. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now, he's a partisan, and it was all meant to take down Trump. That, sh- that much should be quite clear at this point. And the way that Mueller conducted himself and the investigation um, should be viewed differently given what we now know about the very political decisions that he has made. Does anyone really think he's not an anti-Trumper? Does anyone really think that Mueller went into this whole circumstance as special counsel with no intention of taking down the president of the United States? That's unserious. That is unserious. Kathy writes, hey, I've been with you since early, early, Glenn. Even met you with a picture at the man in the moon. Wanted to inform you on the dingles since you mentioned Debbie saying some dribble on the radio. Detroit's major league, of course. Here's her backstory. And you give me a whole bunch of backstory. Uh, Love, love, love the show. Kathy from Michigan. Kathy, thanks so much. Yeah, man in the moon. That was, I guess that would have been. I can't do the math right now. Six years ago or something like that. Five years ago. Uh, I, that was that was good times down in. No, it was five, four or five years ago, I think. And it was down in Salt Lake City. And I did get to meet a lot of you. It was fun. I was in Salt Lake City, walk around the streets and people came up to talk to me. And I appreciated that. I always like it when anyone from the team sees me. I was like, oh, sweet. That's fun. Thank you so much. And I, I tell you, I know when it's when it's Team Buck, when it's somebody from radio, from this radio show who listens they know that I want to talk to them and they can give me a hug or a handshake or a high five or whatever. When it's people that used to know me from CNN, like they'd watch me for a moment when they were on the, the elliptical machine. They'd look at me with these curious eyes like, do I know this fellow? I'm not sure I like him. I think his positions can be a bit problematic because I'm a lib. Uh, Becky writes, I know how much you love chocolate and hate mosquitoes. So I hate to send terrible news. Uh Uh-oh. But mosquitoes actually pollinate cocoa trees. So we kind of need mosquitoes to keep the chocolate flowing. Hope to see you sometime during your L.A. travels. Shields high. Well, thank you, Becky. As of right now, I'm planning to be out in L.A. a little bit in uh, August. So maybe I'll be able to do some kind of impromptu Team Buck meet up out there i'll just uh, always a good one for those of you who are on instagram or or twitter you know sometimes like all right i'm going to eat some barbecue at this place and i'll just go do it or i guess in la it wouldn't be barbecue it would be uh organic and sustainable fish of some kind not farmed fish like fish from that's that's line caught but only from a species of fish that's not being overfished because i don't want to be part of the destruction of fisheries and lack of sustainability don't want there to be too much mercury in my fish either. Man, it's tough. Once you start getting down into the seafood the seafood stuff, you, you can really drive yourself nuts trying to 
do the right thing. Michael right Buck, I was just having a little fun with you. I enjoy hearing your movie opinions. I do. <laughs> you know, Michael, you're setting me up, making me feel like I'm about to get some nice stuff, and then he keeps going. I do, however, think you have bad taste in music. You seem to like pop music more than you like the classics, i.e. Bob Dylan. I'm sorry, Bob Dylan's terrible. Bob Dylan is terrible. That's right. You heard it on this radio show. Yes, you, you can get mad at me because you know I'm right. So you'll come back tomorrow. It's awful. Awful music. People say, oh, he's the poet of his generation or whatever. You know, please. That's enough of that. Uh, if he's a poet, he should be writing poems. Michael goes on. You said train spotting was a bad movie. I love those movies. However, my socioeconomic experience and culture growing up was different than yours. I actually been listening to opera music lately. What's your opinion on that? Shields high. Michael, you know, I've been to a lot of opera. I not a lot. Well, I I go to the opera once a year, but I've been going once a year for about the last 8 or 9 years. Uh so, you know, I've been to the opera a bunch of times and uh the opera is quite an experience. The music is amazing. If you go at, at a high quality to a high quality opera, I've been to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City many times. It's very fancy. It's quite an experience. If you're ever in New York, I would say get get tickets to the opera, maybe skip the the latest you know, kind of cheesy Broadway show. And some of the Broadway shows I know are great, but some of them are real, real corny stuff. Go to the opera. Go to Lincoln Center, uh, and yeah, you know, go to the Metropolitan Opera there. The only thing I will tell you though is be prepared to be there for almost four hours. It is really, really long. Um, but I do listen to opera sometimes. I find it uh, very, very escapist. You know, it because it. it is telling the story although i can't understand the words but i've seen i've seen some operas enough that i i know from where we are i've seen rigoletto a couple of times and listened to the soundtrack many many times uh the marriage of figaro by mozart which for i mean i think if you're looking for the all-time classic uh an all-time classic opera it's tough to beat verdi rigoletto and there are some arias or whatever you call it in that that you will recognize even if you're not an opera lover. But if you're looking for something that's just inspirational, joyous, amazing, brilliant, genius stuff, The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. People, and people the more comic operas, I think, tend to get less love from the, the fancy opera people. But I think The Marriage of Figaro is incredible. I mean, but Mozart, people throw the term genius around a lot now, but Mozart was a genius in the... Music equivalent of an Einstein level. So that's going to be it for today's show. Michael, thanks for uh, keeping me in check there. Always appreciate all of you listening. Please do uh, share the podcast with a friend this week. It would be a solid. It would be a favor to the Freedom Hunt. We would very much appreciate that. Easy to do. Easy to pass around. We will talk to you tomorrow. Shields high.